Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm really lucky today to be joined by Rob Galbraith, who um, unusually we're normally introducing to say like they run XYZ business um, and um, um, man of many hats, uh, which we're always talking about in, in InsureTech land, but um, particularly author, futurist, speaker, thought person on on insure tech um rob i don't know if that's accurately covering you off but I, i'd let you kind of um how would you describe yourself and what and what the work that you do sure alex it's great to be on with you and um yeah no i think you you spot on i i, I am in the process of uh setting up my own business but haven't uh quite pulled the trigger yet because uh It'd be much easier to just say, you know, I'm head of whatever at, at, at this firm and here's what we do. Um, so I, I get to do a lot of the hand waving uh, without that. But uh, it, absolutely, you know, it, we're coming on the three year anniversary of the publication of my book, The End of Insurance as We Know It. And uh, I'm still finding f- folks out there that said, oh, you're an author. When is your book coming out? And it's like, ah, it's, it's, it's been out, you know, yeah. it's done quite well, <laughs> whatever. Um, definitely uh, hope to, to, to write a second book, but uh, don't have any firm dates that I'm ready to commit to yet. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kind of at that uh, time where, uh, right, our, our, our days are fast and our years are slow or vice versa, I guess, with the mm. pandemic. So I'm very much in that time vortex. Uh, so, yes, but uh, the man of many hats is a great way to put it. Absolutely. But to give us some context, because I think that's, um, you know, we've we've had lots of uh, plucky upstarts coming into the insurance landscape saying insurance is broken and I'm going to revolutionize it. Um, uh, that's not you. Uh, there's, a, there's a very good pedigree in insurance. So perhaps you kind of walk us through um, particularly your career at, at USAA and, 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 and what you were doing there. Yeah, happy to. So you're absolutely right. You know, I really kind of come from uh, an insurance background, uh, actually, you know, started my degree at university in economics, had the opportunity to work for the Federal Reserve Board, the, the central bank here in the uh, United States where I'm based uh, for the first two and a half years of my career. Uh, moved down to uh, San Antonio, Texas, whereas I, I still reside, uh, and uh, was able to fortunately catch on with uh, USA after short mm-hmm. stint at uh, mm-hmm. Citibank, uh, and worked at USA for almost 20 years in a variety of different roles. Um, and that really kind of led to um, the ability to innovate. Uh, USA ensures military members and their families, and uh, they do business directly. They don't have uh, uh, agents, uh, either exclusive agents or independent agents or brokers that they sell through. And so um, just give you kind of a, a picture that I think really neatly sums up, you know, their push for innovation. So uh, after 9-11, when the Iraq war started, the Afghanistan war and then the war in Iraq started, uh, you know, mobile phones, right, became a, a big thing kind of at the uh, uh, end of, of the 
the 2000s. And so asking questions about, you know, could we have a mobile app? Could you have somebody that's deployed in Afghanistan at 2 a.m. on one bar that's trying to conduct business, right? And how can we serve their needs? And, you know, that's a very demanding environment. But if we can serve the needs of that uh, individual, then, you know, the general public, whether they be an active duty military, somebody that's previously served, uh, you know, the, the son or daughter or, you know, the grandchild of, of somebody that served, you know, we can probably meet their needs and just, you know, the the shopping mall or whatnot, yeah. right? On a Friday yeah, yeah, afternoon yeah. in a busy time or the Wi-Fi is crowded. So, you know, that kind of mentality just led to a lot of questioning about the business models and, and how can we do things better. And so I think that kind of infiltrated uh, throughout a lot of my thinking and had the opportunity to uh, explore a lot of emerging technologies, uh, partner with a lot of uh, startups. And then really that led to um, me writing uh, my book, which uh, came out at the beginning of 2019 called The End of Insurance as We Know It. Um, had a, just an amazing uh, reception for that book uh, worldwide since that time. I spent uh, two and a half years after leaving USA as uh, innovation lead at a company called AF Group that uh, sells uh, commercial lines insurance rather than personal lines at USA, working through independent agents. And so got exposed to uh, that channel and just how important distribution is uh, mm. in the marketplace and some of the challenges of uh, you know going direct versus going through the agent channel. And, and obviously a lot of startups have uh, you know, I think originally said, you know, these are middlemen and we're going to eliminate that and kind of reduce costs. And they realized that customer acquisition uh, costs are, are quite challenging and mm-hmm. um, have a lot have, have pivoted to um, either, you know, do both or go exclusively through agents or focus on improving the agent experience rather than uh, directly through customers. So mm-hmm. I've been on my own since uh, August of last year and mm-hmm. um, just, you know, enjoying uh, after 25 years of working at large institutions, uh, you know, kind of being a startup myself and advising a lot of companies consulting and and as you mentioned giving a lot of uh talks and uh, uh workshops uh for different corporate clients mm, awesome thank you for that it's it's um it's something i always think about when you talk about usaa which i've not i don't know why it's taken me so long to kind of think of this is that you know a lot of the technological developments that we see uh, in the kind of consumer landscape come from military development and military application because you're saying well this is the this is the extreme end of what we have to cope with whether it be car safety or aviation and um, uh, I hadn't thought to bring it down to the humble insurance you know like if we can if we can kind of build some technology that works for a person on one bar in the in the, in the back end of nowhere then we can probably do it for the the mum in the shopping mall and um, uh, but that, that I think that's an interesting way to look at innovation saying what's the most extreme end of this and then how do we bring this into kind of um, day-to-day parlance um um i uh i I don't think i've set anyone a loftier first question than this so um i i sort of um thank you for being a good sport and and it's really sort of i love the fact that you've got this breadth of background and you've looked at different parts of the value chain and 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 different distribution models and um you know we were always talking on this um podcast about the challenge of having enough breadth of experience to sort of have value for multiple insure techs um so loftiest question i can probably ask is uh it's 2022 what does insurance look like in 2030 for you yeah i i think um a lot of folks such as myself that have you know long careers in the insurance profession really have um, the wrong attitude towards intertech um and you know they rightly point out that technology has been part of the insurance industry for a long time. There's a misnomer out there that uh, insurance entities are are slow to adopt technology. We're actually 
the converse is true. Uh, they were early adopters. They were just early adopters in the 1970s and the 1980s yep. when we had mainframe computing and, and, and then desktop computing following that. And so, you know, maintaining those systems, keeping the trains running while then incorporating a lot of these uh, new emerging technologies um, is exceedingly challenging. A lot of these companies have built up uh, significant technical debt in the 2010s, of course, uh, with a lot of buzz about digital transformation journeys. And it's a big change to go from a proprietary system that's on-premises to something that's uh, perhaps based in the cloud and a more kind of platform ecosystem approach. The idea that, you know, you actually want your system to be able to plug and play with many other systems, some of which you may own, but many of which you don't directly own. And, and that you even want to be open to partner with that startup that doesn't exist yet, but two years from now will be a, a key strategic uh, partner of yours to offer some you know, new, new product or service to your clients. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so Intratech is not a fad. And I know there's been a lot of uh, written, particularly early this year, as some of the uh, early IPOs have uh, you know, now fizzled out and the, the market returns. Uh, you know, this week we get news that uh, Root is having to lay off uh, you know, 300 individuals and uh, the lemonade uh, share price has fallen below its, its IPO price. So I think we're at a little bit of a nadir in terms of just, hey, you know, are we losing momentum on the InsurTech space? I actually feel like we're still very much uh, in the early days. And mm. so to your question about the 2030s, much of what I've seen um, is really improving on the same model uh, that we've had for a really long time in insurance. And so maybe you're out marketing somebody, you've got some you know quick twist of, of use of AI or something, but you know, fundamentally it, it's very much the same. And I see a lot of opportunity um, for just fundamentally rethinking insurance. I talk about uh, the scale technologies, uh, scale being an acronym. And so that's sensors, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, localized knowledge. Think about you know, GPS, aerial imagery, things like that. Efficiencies in the back office. So efficient technologies, RPAs, OCR, you know, natural language processing, mm-hmm. low-code, no-code solutions, uh, and then uh, digital distribution and, and communication, right? That ability to transact business online or at least communicate with, with, with clients on, online, that important part. Mm-hmm. And again, we're, we're still very much in the early days of kind of incorporating those technologies, both traditional incumbents and startups. Uh, to the point where you're really coming up with a compelling value proposition to uh, to customers. And in many cases, it is starting in the personal line space and, and small commercial space. And what I'm seeing, particularly in uh, a lot of developing economies, is um, the ability to offer insurance products to people that have never had insurance before. They think about microinsurance, I think about uh, you know crop insurance, type products, parametric uh, cover, um, things like you know being able to insure the Amazon package getting stolen off your porch, right? Travel mm-hmm. insurance, you know, embedded mm-hmm. has been a big thing, and so I think what you're going to see is is really two things uh, in the 2030s. One, a whole new just suite and class of uh, insurance products um, that don't exist today or are just starting to come out today. Where we're going to be buying insurance for a whole lot more things, and we may not even know who we're buying it from. Right? It may be through a, a retailer um, or, or somebody else, but. I think we're going to want that type of production on all manner of different things and bringing down the cost uh, curve, the expense ratio allows you to open up to a lot of new marketplaces. The second thing I think is going to be competing on both algorithms and experiences, right? So if you have the best data um, and the best algorithms, you're going to outcompete from a you know pricing underwriting standpoint. 
but of course, if you don't have that uh, compelling experience part, you're going to really struggle to, to um, attract uh, customers. Mm-hmm. And so I think about things like telematics. I think about things like, you know, smart home devices, wearables, you name it. Um, these sensors are able to stream data where we can kind of directly observe behavior of systems, right? We don't have to ask, right? What make and model is your car? We don't have to ask how old it's your, 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 your home is, what's the size of your flat, things like that. Um, and we really, you know, there are people that are collecting that data and they really looked at it, but we really ha- haven't made this full paradigm shift uh, to doing business that way. And that eliminates a lot of the, the subjective questions that we have to ask, you know, agents to collect or, or ask of clients, a lot of the manual checkpoints that you have to do in an underwriting or claims process. And so I just think we're going to see a, a fundamental rethink of insurance. And I think we're going to see some uh, of the traditional insurers, you know, continue to be leaders in the space in 2030. But I think we're going to see a host of new names as well. And that's different for our sector because traditionally, right? The top companies have been the top companies for decades, if not for centuries. Many of them have a, a very mm-hmm. long and rich mm-hmm. history. We're not used to that dynamicism that you might see in retail or entertainment or other sectors. And so I think that's going to be a, a big change that we'll see in the 2030s. There's going to be a lot of new names out there that don't exist or you know, very minor uh, today that um, I think are going to be household names uh, globally mm. in the 2030s. Mm. Thank you, thank you. I set you a, I set you a lofty question, and uh, you answered very, <laughs> very fully, which I, which I like. Uh, something I couldn't help thinking about whilst you were talking was, was about the. Um, I think when we talk about disruption, when we talk about uh, innovation. Um, uh, I keep thinking, come back to the customer, because almost every podcast guest that I have that that, that sells a uh, an insure tech product or insure tech solution is talking about customer and focusing on that um and i and i just take it back to it we take insurance back to first principles and, and not even first principles just talking about to the sort of rudimentary concept of sitting at uh, lloyd's coffee house and there's a ship going out and we're all putting our name under it if it goes down we'll cover you for the cost of it very simplistic very transactional um there's a there's a there's a there's a thing that we're ensuring that if lost we're going to repay for and and to put good and I think about the kind of evolution of insure tech as we look at it. Is it is it more reflective of the sort of demands of society that our demands are so nuanced now? Because let's be honest, most sort of particularly sort of richer civilizations that if we lose a laptop, it's an inconvenience. You know, it's an inconvenience. It's like yes, I'd like I'd like to return the money for my laptop, but it's, it's more of an inconvenience. So we're getting into these nuanced insurances like the Amazon package getting stolen off my porch but that's because we live in a world where it's perfectly normal for me to get something delivered in 24 hours and it just sits on my porch you know um, rather than it being actually evolution of, in, of insurance and insurance being broken it's more of an evolution of society and therefore what we expect from from an insurance product do, do you I, I've taken a very long time to ask a question. No, but I, I don't know if that uh, uh, trans came across at all. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, you're you're one hundred percent. And in my book, I talk about what I call the seven fatal flaws of insurance. Um, and without going into too much detail, that is essentially that insurance is too expensive, meaning it's a large percentage of you know a household's budget or a business's budget. 
Um, it's too complicated. So mm -hmm. you might think about your utility bill and while it may be expensive to pay your uh, electricity or your water, right? The, the use cases and the benefits that you derive are fairly obvious. So you don't mind paying that if you're, you know, again, right? Leasing a, uh, an apartment or you're, you know, a, a car, right? You're making a car payment. These things are lots of money, but very compelling. The same isn't true of insurance, right? It's like I'm paying hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars a month for something I hope I don't use. Right? Mm -hmm. And then when mm -hmm. I go to use it, of course, most people kind of default to the idea of a bank account of, oh, you've been saving my premiums on the side, you know, to be this pot of money for me when I need to use it. And the idea that actually, no, your premiums are going to pay losses that other people had right in this year. And at the end of the year, right? there's no pot of money for you, right? And if you have a loss and that's gonna come from, from other people, I think people still really struggle um, mm -hmm. and they don't understand certainly deductibles, right? Uh, sub limits, co-insurance, the whole nine yards that most of us that have been in the industry for a long time can certainly rip off and, and recite and are very kind of proud of our knowledge, but that's not the way most people's mental model of insurance works. So when they interact with the product and you know, mm -hmm. they have that claim or whatever, they get very confused. And again, that's where the agents and brokers really play a valuable role in terms of you know, educating folks Folks on something that they don't know much about and probably don't care to know much about. Um, <laughs> it's certainly easy to game the system, right? So fraud and then fraud prevention, both of those jack up the, the, the overall cost of insurance. It's a cash drain. So in addition to being expensive, the liquidity, right? You mentioned uh, losing your laptop or if your laptop's damaged. If you think about using a credit card to pay for that, it's like, I only have to incur the expense when the, the, the damage actually occurs. And then I have a lot of flexibility on paying it off. I could pay it off immediately right away, or I could pay a minimum balance over a period of time, or perhaps I pay a, a, a you know, set amount until I get some bonus or some extra money. And then I, I pay the whole thing off. So, you know, you have a lot of flexibility as somebody that's incurred that loss in terms of how you, uh, you know, how you cover that with insurance, right? You no, know, you know, you've got to pay the premiums up front in, in almost mm. every case. And so losing the use of that money that, you know, the, the insurance company is going to invest that money, right? And then it helps bring premiums down, but, you know, they're recouping the, the, the benefit of having that cash and being able to invest. So this is how Warren Buffett is really you know, made a, a living. Um, it uh, doesn't cover all causes of loss. It doesn't cover everything that you would want to insure. And it doesn't cover every one that we would want to insure. And so to the extent that we have people that are uncovered for things like, you know, flood and, and other things, you know, a lot of the burden falls upon uh, the government. Mm. So it might be disaster assistance mm -hmm. or maybe some type of uh, social safety net programs. And as most uh, of the developed countries really start to uh, age, start to have more retirees, you know, the ratio of workers to retirees is going to become, you know, smaller and smaller. I do think that governments are going to be under pressure to uh, limit the amount of spending and look for ways to kind of offload this. And if they can partner uh, by, you know, working with private insurance entities that are willing to take on these risks that, you know, maybe insurable, but are not offered today in a particular country, just because the government's providing that. Um, I think you're going to see kind of a growing size of the marketplace uh, from mm. that as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and we always see that, don't we? So the, the more developing a, or, or richer civilization, we see more insurances and excuse me becomes more nuanced and um i think that's the thing i think i think we've become isolated from like the true the true purpose of insurance which is to basically ensure the 
ensure the level playing field of like society I, I really believe in that I, I really believe insurance as a social good and and um you know because i always bring it back to kind of that that familial situation if you had a, f- a family or a village and you and look at the world like that then you know if we all covered each other's kind of in- individual losses we'd, we'd all be in the same place but um uh but you know i'm a hipster that lives in brighton so we're kind of <laughs> <laughs> that always comes out always comes out of me um I wanted to ask you. Um, um, we, we touched on it. You touched on it there uh, earlier. Talking point was 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 what's happened at Root recently, and we've seen the kind of drop in the. We've seen the fall in the value of the really prominent neo insurers. You know the Lemonades and uh, and and the Roots. Um, I wanted to ask you what you think that means in reflection of the pricing of the incumbents, because um, to a certain extent the incumbents have, have have had a bit of a kind of PR kicking for the last uh, few years. Um, but surely they're feeling slightly smug right now, I would imagine, though. Yeah, they're, they're probably sort of feeling, do you think they're underpriced? Um, or was it, were we victims of the hype machine, do you think, um, when, when, when it came to pricing those kind of uh, emergent neo-insurers? Yeah, I think uh, part of it is simply not having a lot of experience, right? So this idea of, of new insurers, right? The neo insurance companies. I mean, um, like I mentioned before, a lot of traditional incumbents have been around for decades. So you really haven't had a new listing for a long time. Maybe there's some type of demutualization or, or, or things like that. And so I don't feel like a lot of the incumbents are are undervalued. I think insurance is um, a difficult uh, sector um, relative to to many other sectors in terms of an investor because you have this uh, high capital requirement and low margins. And so it's just not an attractive profile for a business Mm -hmm. for many Mm -hmm. investors, just depending on their their time horizon. So I think seeing a lot of the um, insure techs and and neo-insurers kind of, I guess, you know, have a little bit of gravity, right? Coming back to earth makes a lot of sense to me, particularly because in many cases, I don't see them as being fundamentally different than the traditional incumbents against they're competing against. And so that's mm-hmm. the part about InsurTech that uh, I still kind of wait on. And I think we absolutely will see in the 2030s is that totally new, totally revolutionary, you know, fundamentally, a lot of these people are using the same contract forms. They're using a lot of the same, you know, pricing processes. There's often a twist. There's a, a marketing component. Some of that is hype. Some of that I think is absolutely real, right? There, there may be a, a lower expense ratio, for instance, if they're using a better use of technology. But I think that, you know, as I mentioned, I haven't seen just something that's just totally new, totally different. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, I think about moats, right? So what is a competitive advantage for a business? If you're using a brand new source of data that nobody else has, it gives you better insight and risk. Or if you've got better algorithms, it can make better sense of a lot of this data. And, you know, is that uh, a, a lasting competitive advantage, right? A big motor is that just a, a temporary advantage that you might have? And so particularly we talked about the digital transformation journeys. And I look at companies like Guidewire and Duck Creek that um, not only are, are you know more and more companies going to those platforms, but because they are now having partner networks, they're able to integrate a lot of the uh, you know, insure tech startups, particularly those that are more technology focused rather than looking to compete. They're looking to enable uh, incumbents. Mm. You know, that actually simplifies a lot of the um, partnerships, a lot of the opportunities, if you can do it through a core systems platform. So um, I'm sure there'll be kind of a, you know, a a back and forth uh, over time, but what I'm kind of looking for, and I believe is out there, but I haven't really seen it yet is a company that um, has carved out a true niche, right. That is different than everyone else. That's going to give them a lasting competitive advantage over time. 
Yeah, it's, I, I, I think it's there's a couple of things I that, that came to mind when we were talking about that. Is that one? You know, I always want to be really clear that you know I, I I've no agenda against the neo insurers, and I'm 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 sure I speak for you that you you haven't either. But um, it's more the hype machine and more reflective of how we how we price such things in society rather than 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 them over hyping it because you know the disparity between their the way they were being priced versus the incumbent class for me was the massive warning sign. It wasn't a reflection of the, the, the business model because what I saw was a, a modern take on a traditional insurance play. So better distribution, probably a better customer experience. And um, Jeff Keast was on um, uh, uh, from Montu was on a podcast and he talked about how um, banks have for a long time done a very good job of getting you when you go to college to get your first bank account and then staying with you because they they were giving you free bank accounts because they saw you as a lifetime customer. And I think what particularly Lemonade did, I thought that was incredibly smart, is that get you as a renter because you're going to be so probably younger in age and then try and be basically your insurer for that life journey. So the long-term value of the Lemonade model and the long-term value of a Lemonade customer should ultimately be higher. Um, but we were trying to kind of that's a long-term solution, and unfortunately, the way that we we, we value uh, you know the stock market is 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 in the short term, and and I think I think that's where it was at odds. So um, you know I I think this is kind of a sort of naturalisation of the market um, and no reflection on those businesses because yeah it was a it was for me it was they were they were really interested nuances, and I think long term they'll be incredibly successful um in maybe retaining customers if they have that attitude of going right once we get you it's all about losing you whereas insurance has become particularly on a personal uh, lines basis it's so price sensitive it's so much about kind of transactional relationships but um the big shift is like can you get enough touch points with your customer to keep loyalty and and that's where i think there's an interesting uh uh, thing to play out but we'll we'll only see that by 2030 so we'll have to we'll have to do this in eight years and uh, and find out rob and uh, see if we're there um um I, I think leading on from that and i think we were just about to get onto that was that you know do you think we well i think we both acknowledge they haven't you know why haven't we seen enough big leaps uh, you know, but we haven't seen those big leaps. We've seen nuances in distribution. We've seen nuances of that. You know, are we actually? Do you think we're actually seeing any true innovation, or are we just seeing, uh, you know, variations on a theme at this point in time? I definitely think there's true innovation, um, and again, I think it's um, you know a bit early days, right, where it hasn't kind of fully taken hold. So. You know, there's some amazing technologies out there um, in all manner. So I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm going to you know, leave somebody out. But for instance, I think about the ability to review documents, right? Um, and you know, medical bills, doctor's notes, um, things like that. There's a lot of back office processes that quite frankly require a lot of manual touch points. And I think the pandemic mm. has actually kind of shined light on this. So anybody mm. that had kind of a mail operation that everyone moved work from home, it's like, well, you know, how are we supposed to get the mail? How are we supposed to answer it? How are we supposed to process this? And you know, if your job is to type information from screen one into screen two, when these systems clearly don't talk to each other, right? Or you're on the phone having to check with somebody all day. I, I, I There's a lot of that, a lot of manual touch points and a lot of our workflows. And so I think a lot of the insurtechs have tried to understand um, 
the idea of workflows, right? And the idea of trying to integrate in with a system and, you know, they may have a, a more compelling piece, but that's only one of 10 steps, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, in the workflow. And so, hey, if you don't do all 10, or if you don't integrate well with the, the, the uh, systems that do the other nine or things like that, right? The, these become challenged. So yes, on a strictly ROI for a particular step, right? That can be a, a challenge. So I just think, you know, the, the, the SaaS model, uh, software as a, a solution subscriptions, um, it's giving you know access to enterprise level software that only the largest companies could have to a whole bunch more players now. And I think mm -hmm. again through you know whether it be uh, you know open insurance initiatives that we have in a lot of uh, countries, just that idea of kind of moving to APIs. Uh, we're in kind of these early days, but you're going to see a lot more interoperability. You're going to see the ability to um, you know adapt to a new solution relatively quickly, and so things like, you know, billing reviews, things that are kind of manual touches today, I think um, you're going to see a lot of uh, expense benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those companies that don't adopt, right, they're all of a sudden going to start kind of losing out because their expense ratios are going to become uncompetitive. So I don't know that those things are lasting competitive advantage, but I do think that they're going to move the industry to hopefully uh, what is lower and lower expense ratios over time, mm -hmm. uh, which again is better for consumers, of course, and opens up a new range of products that um, you know otherwise right might not have been possible because expense ratios were too high. You mentioned lemonade, kind of starting with the renters, right? That's exactly why they started. Of hey, here's an underserved segment of business that we think we can quickly gain market share and become a, a top ten uh, rider in for that particular line, and then obviously expand out from there as we get known and as our customers, uh, you know, age and mature and have needs for for other products, and so. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. The other thing I'll mention, Alex, is um, we were talking about competitive advantage. And I think about a company like Apple, right, um, that they've done two things really well that I think is instructive for folks in the insurance industry. One is that ability to kind of turn over what their lead product is. So starting kind of with Macintosh, right? Uh, going to an iPod, uh, then you've got, right, the, the you know, iPhone, I've listened to you on you know, AirPods now and all that. And so, you know, you can see that their sell of desktop Macs isn't nearly what it was probably, mm -hmm. you know, 34 years ago, but they've continued mm -hmm. to reinvent themselves, right? Um, from a product standpoint, they've kept their products fresh. They've kept their products relevant. Um, they talk about a beautifully simple design as kind of a, a theme throughout. And so they've been able to maintain that even from Steve Jobs to, to Tim Cook. So I, I just love the fact that if you look at the product mix, right, of what they've been able to sell, and iPhone obviously continues to still be the, the top one, you know, over a decade later, but, you know, they've, that's how they've become the, the, the largest company in the world. The other thing that they've done is they've become a lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. So I don't think about Apple as a technology company, right? Yes, that's actually what business they're in and that's what they sell, but they're more than that. I don't think of them as a competitor to a Microsoft or Lenovo or others, right? Or Samsung. I think of them kind of in their own class of business, mm -hmm. uh, whereas I don't think about that for all those other names that I mentioned. I see them as kind of interchangeable. And so I think that's where the insurance industry has really struggled is what's difference between these companies? Is there a meaningful difference or two point? Do I just kind of, you know, go on the aggregator and see who's cheapest uh, this, this renewal? And so I think that um, companies that are able to do that, and that might be through not just offering insurance, but having insurance as a feature, right? As one aspect of a more compelling value proposition. And that might be around 
you know, uh, digital health initiatives that might be around smart home. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, right? But mm-hmm. I think um, when we kind of extend to be a more relevant offering, that's more of a, a lifestyle where you're embedded in my everyday life. Um, and I think about you as a separate class from just an insurance company. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, ability to carve out kind of a, a bit of a fortress there competitively for anyone that's able to, to make that happen. Mm, yeah. I mean, uh, as you were saying that, I was like, uh, one, I was two things, my, my raging hatred for anything Apple when it comes to my business, because, because, because <laughs> I, I just have, uh, I just have palpitations about, I had a guy that bought his laptop and he had three of his cables went in about the same month. And every time I went to buy one, I was like, how much are they? It was like, oh, like, like 40 pounds. I was like, it's like three pounds for my, 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 uh, my non, non Apple product. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, I ran out of patience with it very quickly. It was cheaper to buy my laptop, but, but no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Is it's, it's that, that brand piece um, is so powerful. And, and, you know, I, I do think that in a complimentary way about what Lemonade did, I think that they've sort of made it, cool to like like an insurance company because of their message and some of the kind of um you know not-for-profit elements of what they've been doing um but secondly uh, you know i think that's why embedded for me is so important and compelling as a proposition because it's you know we talk about hyper personalization of insurance and and the person the insured you know surely we get to a point where you know i've got my smartwatch on i wear it to the gym i wear it when i run i wear it when i work when I get home, my phone's on me anyway. So my phone and my watch can tell you whether I'm driving or flying or sitting down or at work. And and almost surely we get to a point where I pay a variable insurance cost for at the end of the month or, or, or you know, that that covers off what I did, what I actually did rather than what I should be doing. And, and you know, it's an all-in-one solution. And I, I that for me feels like the sort of almost the end point of what insurance um, should be because you know I only want to pay for the things that I've used. I think that's what everyone gets frustrated about. Um, you know, we're seeing that in small you know stages, aren't we? Where your insurance turns off because you're home, so you're not, you're not likely to get burgled or at least goes down. And uh, you know, you don't pay to you know you didn't pay to uh, insure your car uh, from a liability standpoint because it was sat on your driveway because we weren't allowed to drive anywhere during the pandemic. And I think we're seeing those kind of steps in that direction. But that 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 for me, seems like the ultimate goal um, that we're driving towards. Um, what that means from a company perspective is, is, is quite interesting, but even the, I think the evolution of things that we're seeing in the vertical stack, you know, if you've got a vertical stack for running a recruitment company like mine, you can see everything. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to be able to get that insurance, which is just relevant for me and my business. Um, um, but like uh, we, we've done a lot of, um, yeah, polite bashing, but we've 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 been we've 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 pointed out some of the flaws. But um, I, I wanted to talk about um what what's interesting you right now and what's impressing you that you're seeing out there. Um, because you know there's so much creativity and innovation happening. Um, any particular technologies or maybe even individuals, companies that you, that you've got your eye on, you think are genuinely doing something different? Yeah, I think um, a couple um, uh, areas, and I, I won't name any uh, specific companies, but uh, first of all, there is um, so much innovation going on in areas such as Latin America and mm-hmm. Africa and uh, parts of Asia that uh, these have historically been kind of underserved by the larger companies. I think there's more penetration, right, in, in North America and Europe. And um, a lot of the offerings in those areas tend to be 
you know, uh, uh, that office, right, of a larger company that might be based mm. in, in Europe or is not in that area. And so I'm seeing a ton of innovation from uh, people that are in those markets, that know that markets, that know the challenge in those markets. Um, for instance, I was talking with a gentleman that uh, recently set up a business in Mexico and he wants to emulate what they've done at Next Insurance and sell small commercial business to Mexico. And I'm going to, you know, apologize, I'm going to, you know, mess up the exact statistics, but it was something like, you know, 92% or or thereabouts of small businesses in Mexico don't have any insurance coverage. They don't wow. have that kind of protection. And mm-hmm. so to your point earlier, Alex, about, you know, families, you know, folks uh, saving away or right under the mattress or that rainy day fund. And uh, so this is uh, very, very common in many of these countries. And I think um, both there's a, there's a social element, right. Uh, to being able to provide insurance products. Um, but then also, uh, there's a, a, a societal benefit in terms of that frees up if, if, if that insurance product actually takes hold and, and gains the trust of consumers to where they really believe in it and they trust it and they don't need to save as much, then they're able to spend that, right? And that might be mm. consumption or that might be investment in their own business or whatnot. And so that's going to actually fuel economic growth in those areas. Um, there's another you know, startup in uh, uh, Africa, and I'm, I'm forgetting the specifics, but I know that they were actually accepting recyclables um, for premium premium payments, right, wow. uh, as a way to kind of offset. So there's just some, you know, true mm. innovation out there. And, and I think that because these countries have been underserved by the, you know, the existing markets, um, they're not necessarily tied to old systems or old paradigms or old ways of doing things. And so they can be creative, they can come up with things uh, that are applicable for the market. And then I actually see kind of this reverse innovation cycle where traditionally, right, uh, it's happened in places such as Silicon Valley, right, and then kind of going out to the, the rest of the world. Um, London, certainly, right, the center for financial innovation and kind of spreads out. I actually think some of those are going to come to our area. So uh, businesses that are you know entirely done by mobile phone, and in many cases, in these countries, right? The mobile phone provider has partnered with that insurance company in terms of a low cost distribution method. And so I think as, as we see successes in some of those uh, areas, those will actually be kind of exported to uh, the, the, you know, more richly penetrated areas that today are, are, you know, well-served doesn't mean it couldn't be better, but maybe don't have that, you know, so-called burning platform to Mm. innovate for insurance products as there are in many other areas that are, are not adequately served by the industry today. Mm. I love that idea. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Like taking recyclables to pay for insurance premium. Um, what a great double incentive that is! Uh, free insurance and and, and more cycling. Uh, that definitely speaks to my uh, my value chain. Uh, off air, I'll have to find out what company that is. I'm I'm really intrigued. They they need they need to be a guest. That might be the next guest. But um, um, uh, final question. Really conscious of your time, and thank you for being so generous. I um I kind of wanted to know, and this is a, a bit of a fun question, really more than anything. Like where you think we are on this like insurance evolutionary time time frame you know are we standing upright yet are we uh, are we still on all fours are we, uh, are, we uh, are we on our heels yet where do you think we are on the on the, on the sort of evolution yeah great question i think we're still on all fours and, and we're crawling, <laughs> crawling around some and we might be lifting up on the coffee table a bit to look around but i think it's still you know very much um early on and and again one one of the things that i I talk to companies about, you know, you kind of mentioned this insurance futurist and we talk about the 2030s is um, I try to get companies to think beyond often their strategic horizon, quite frankly, is just three to five years. Right. And it's usually more on the short end than the long end. And I get it. Everyone has goals for a year. 
oftentimes bonuses and other incentives are tied to meeting those goals. But um, those can be counterproductive for looking, you know, at 10 years in advance. And so, you know, I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers, but when I talk to companies, I try to bucket things into four different categories. You know, what are the economic and financial trends uh, that are you observe today and how do you think they're going to play out or, or could play out 10 years from now? What are some of those demographic and societal changes? You know, what are some of the things in terms of, uh, you know, politics or evolving risks, right? Certainly a pandemic probably wasn't at the top of mind at the beginning of 2020, mm -hmm. but right now we'll certainly be mindful. Um and then finally, the technology piece. And I see a lot of companies really start with the technology piece, right? But I actually ask them to focus on those technological trends last, uh, because obviously there's this interesting interplay between technology and society and, and you know, countries and behaviors, and then vice versa, right? There's kind of a feedback loop of, we think about people and shaping technology, but then what we've learned through you know social media and, and many other ways, right? That the technology actually shapes people and, and behaviors and can kind of change our, our course. So thinking about those kind of dynamics. And then I ask companies, okay, now that you've painted a picture of what you think this future could look like, like what are some of the key assumptions that are underpinning that? And how do you think it's going to develop out? And so build your plan around where you think you know the, the industry is going to be 10, 15 years from now. What investments do you need to be making now so you're not in that you know, hole of technical debt or, or you're not following yourself behind, but then really hold yourself accountable to revisiting those assumptions every six months. We know something's going to change. I mean, the, the only constant is change. That's the one thing that we can say. And so agility and flexibility, building that into your enterprise is so key. And that's not easily done uh, for traditional incumbents. And I've even talked to insure tech startups that are talking about entirely replacing their tech stack yeah. after three years, right? It, which yeah. just is, you can't believe it as somebody that's come mm. from that traditional incumbent world where you're still running mainframes in the 1970s and trying mm. to get off of the green screens, right? Um, but it is so imperative. And so uh, I very much think that there's a lot of technologies um, that hold promise today um, that are just scratching the surface, just being explored that will be mainstream in the 2030s. And so which are those, which are fads versus which are going to have blasting power? That's really the challenge for C-suite to try to uh, anticipate and, and figure out and having kind of robust conversations. Uh, this is where diversity and inclusion, quite frankly, is quite important, right? We, mm. we value it for its own social good. It, it feels like the right thing to do, but it's also as a business benefit of getting people from different backgrounds, from different viewpoints, um, to talk about these things. Uh, one final thought is this whole myth of experience um, that is out there. Traditionally, it's been a very apprenticeship type model in the industry, right? Where you work as an underwriter or as a claims adjuster, and maybe after five years, you make it to senior. And after 10 years, you make it into management. And if you know everything goes well, maybe you're an executive in 20 years, if, if all things work out. Um, th there's still elements of insurance that that is absolutely true and, and still holds. But uh, there's also elements where you know millennials and now Gen Z entering the workforce, uh, they have a different experience with technology um, because they've been immersed with it from the ground up. And I see it in my three kids. And so they're going to have very different thoughts about how new technologies could be incorporated in insurance that are equally as valid as those such as myself that have been in the industry for over two decades. And so you know, finding that right balance, having that uh, difference of opinion, you know, making sure that you're really getting everybody's wisdom, uh, and that could be the wisdom of the 19-year-old intern even, mm. um, you know, as part of your discussions about, you know, where your sh company should uh, head and, and uh, how you should, you should proceed, I think is critically important.
Yeah, that's, I think that's so crucial. I, I think, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, something that we're clearly trying to sort of support through the through the work that we do and, and whether that be um, from the recruitment work we do and, and the way that we approach recruitment and proactive recruitment and, uh, you know, blind CV submission and all that good stuff and, and, and through to our flight series, um, uh, the female leaders in insurance technology series, you know, it, it's about having those different ideas in the room. And, and I think, you you look at insurance um, and it's been very easy to throw stones at, but you know, the reason that we launched our flight series was that you look at InsurTech and there's some very similar looking people, um, you know, uh, <laughs> get, that are more likely to raise money and are more likely to sort of innovate. And um, and that's not discrediting anyone involved, but I, I just, you know, it's, a, it's, 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 it's Friday afternoon here, but we, we went out for lunch as a team today and, and, and the, the two women that work for me are both 22. Um, their take on technology, we were talking about social media and, and you know, just even the, the different interactions, their view of it is completely different from mine. And and because I came into this sort of social media world, at, I'm 40, the, at the age of, you know, sort of 24, 25, they've, they've grown up with it their whole life. And so their interaction is different, their expectations are different. And, and therefore, you've got this kind of very different consumer consumer kind of viewpoint on it and, and what they want from it. And, and, and clearly that impacts into how we're, our expectations of insurance, our expectations of, um, of, of these businesses. And, um, you know, I, I'm always impressed with businesses from a recruitment standpoint when they're brave, you know, and when they, when they make brave decisions on, you know, hiring someone that, yeah, maybe doesn't have the sort of direct application of experience, but we know is talented and we think they can do it. And, and I think certainly, um, and I'm over sort of laboring the point slightly, but one of my concerns always with big insurance businesses is they generally are large and they generally are shareholder led. And, and, and as a result, the incentives for the leadership to change when they get 4% growth year on year, it's very difficult to justify change. You know, you're successful, you're hitting your numbers. Why rock the boat? And, and it's going to take people to be brave. And I suppose that for me is the importance of venture capital. That's the, for me is the importance of startups is, is, there's an opportunity to be brave, but as you said on the on some of those in their three year journey already throwing out their tech stack. Once you become, once you become start to become part of the establishment, you become bigger. You become part of the kind of makeup of the insurance industry. You risk being in the position of not being able to innovate yourself. So it's it's a, it's a real complicated um, situation. Um, and and that's another hour long podcast. So uh, <laughs> I won't I won't go any further with that one. But um, Rob, it's been a genuine pleasure. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, thank you so much for for being a guest. And um, and and my final, last, slightly cheeky question because we started beforehand: How long till we see you at the helm of your own innovative new thing? Is 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 that something for twenty twenty two? Do we think, or should we should we keep posted on that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's the goal this year. And uh, you know, you and I were talking, and we're recording this at the very tail end of uh, January, and. Uh, you know, I've yet to make my New Year's resolution, so I know that's on the list, but I haven't sat down <laughs> and, and formalized it. And um, you know, I've I've been uh, very fortunate to speak to folks you know, all over the world on this. As I mentioned, you know, coming up the three-year anniversary of the publication of 
the end of insurance as we know it. And I know how much that has really resonated. So whether that's, uh, you know, another book, whether that's a newsletter of some type, whether that's my own podcast, uh, which I am the co-host of a podcast called the InsurTech Geek Podcast. I uh, <laughs> have folks uh, uh, encourage them to, to check out and to subscribe to, you know, whether that's a video series or whatnot. So I, I think there's a, a ton of uh, uh, interesting things going on in the insurance and InsurTech world. So hoping to, uh, kind of develop into a content creation model that's out there. So more to come on that once that's uh, formalized. Awesome. Rob, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being a guest on the Leadership Insurance Podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Alex. Enjoyed you. the conversation. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email of alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.